0: In this message, we talk about the secret to ministry as demonstrated by Jesus and answers to common questions where we deal with issues such as Paul's thorn, Job's troubles, Timothy's stomach, Trophimus, Epaphroditus, and others. Another important sermon you should not miss. You know, in the Bible, you find at least two kinds of faiths. There is Abraham's faith and there is Thomas's faith. Right? Thomas was the kind of person who said, you know, all his friends, all all the other disciples were saying, Thomas, we saw the Lord. Thomas is like, man, I am not taking your word for it. Unless I see him, and not just see him, I put my finger, you know, into his wounds, and unless I do that, I will not believe. That was Thomas' kind of faith. Now, we might think, well, that's reasonable to say that, but you know, when the Lord appeared to the whole group and Thomas was there, you know, the Lord spoke to Thomas and he said, Thomas, you know, when the Lord Jesus appeared to Thomas, what did he tell him? He said, Thomas, don't be, come on guys, you must have read it at least once, be not faithless, don't be faithless, but believing. So, Jesus called this kind of faith, he really called it being faithless. Don't be faithless. But believe. And he said, blessed are those. He said, Thomas, you have... Now, then after that, you know, Thomas said, my Lord, my God. He quickly you know, became very Christian. My Lord, my God. And, and Jesus said, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Okay? So that's Thomas' kind of faith. But Jesus actually called it as faithless. Meaning that's really not the kind of faith we call to what? But this Abraham's faith is totally opposite. You read about Abraham's faith in Romans 4. It talks about Abraham who believed God against all hope. He believed what God had spoken. He did not consider his own body, which was now dead. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's wound. But he just believed what God had spoken. So that's Abraham's faith. And that's the kind of faith we are called to walk in. What is it? It's faith that believes the word. In spite of contradictory evidence. Natural evidence. Thomas said, I will only believe what my natural evidence tells me. Jesus called that faithless. Abraham said, I'll believe the word, even though the word contradicts my natural evidence. I believe it. And God called Abraham, this man, he's a father of faith. Amen? So what kind of faith are we called to walk in? The faith that believes the word in spite of the natural evidence. Because everything in the natural can and will align itself to the word when we believe the word. Are you with me? Right? That's the kind of faith we are called to walk in. What does the word say? Believe that first. Then my body, my finances, my family, my job, my career, my present, my future. All of that can change. It can align itself up to the word. But I must first believe the word. That's the kind of faith. Be called to walk in. So let's stand up as we make our declaration this morning. We are saying what we believe from the word of God. So hold your Bible high up in the air and say this with me. This is God's word. This is God speaking to me. I am who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I will become everything God has promised. I am saved, healed, delivered, redeemed. I am blessed, victorious, prosperous, triumphant. I am a minister of God, a servant of Christ, and a channel of His blessing to many people. I receive His word, I believe His word, and I live by His word. Christ is my master, and to Him I am in absolute surrender, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. you. May be seated, please. All right, I just want to call Auntie Maria. I just remember, Auntie Maria, you wanted to say a few things. Uh, she just wants to bring a little encouragement for prayer. I'll let, her, let Auntie Maria do that, and then we will uh, get into God's word.
1: Good morning. I just want two minutes of your undivided attention. How many of you all are born again? Can I see your hands? Well, all of y'all are born again. And so, God calls y'all His people. Am I right? Y'all are considered God's own people. So, can you kindly turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? Well, God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. So, if you consider yourself God's people, then Jesus is inviting each one of y'all to come for prayer on Sunday at 10 o'clock. It's not an invitation by pastor or by the leader who conducts the prayer here. It's an invitation by Jesus himself. No more excuses because the time of excuses is over. You'll be so used to making excuses that when the time of the banquet invitation goes out, you'll make the excuse again and you'll be left out at the rapture. It's a serious matter. So let us all get together and pray. Consider the Sunday service as 10 o'clock instead of 10.30 hereafter. Please take it seriously. Okay? So, and let not it begin from next Sunday and then slowly the numbers dwindle. Let it not be so. Because Jesus gave you his everything and so you need to respond By making sure you are here every Sunday at 10 o'clock. Take it as an invitation from Jesus himself. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So 10 to 10.30 is prayer time. So you were reminded this morning to come come here. 10 o'clock, 10 to 10.30, let's keep that time for prayer. Amen. To pray together, and especially now as we're moving into a season of harvest um, for the Power to Change campaign, let's just come together and pray uh, in the mornings, 10 to 10.30, and of course, other churches will be, other locations will be 8 to 8.30, we pray there, and uh, 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 let's pray, and pray specifically, saying, God, we want to see a big harvest of souls in our city. So please come Sunday mornings, 10 to 10.30 here uh, for prayer, In other locations, it's 8 to 8.30. Okay. Thank you, Andy Maria. Um, let's turn in, in this book uh, to chapter 5. Um, last Sunday we covered chapter 4, uh, where we um, talked about uh, some important keys for ministering healing and deliverance. And our purpose in going through this entire teaching is to equip all of us to learn how to minister healing and deliverance. We want to see all of us being used by God. Amen? Okay, put your right hand up. Be not faithless. (laughs) I can be used by God. I will be used by God. Amen. Right? So everybody, we all think, okay, God can use him and God can use him, but not me. No, God wants to use you, right? And he will use you to minister healing and deliverance and do great things. And so we're just equipping uh, us as, as a church, as a people, uh, to do this. And so last Sunday we talked about uh, seven, seven different aspects uh, about ministering healing and deliverance. That was chapter 4. He talked about the will of God, the exercise of faith, uh, the flow of compassion, the anointing of the Spirit, uh, dealing with the issue of sin and salvation, the methods Jesus used, and the nature of um, Jesus' healings and miracles. The key... Uh, uh, to sum that up in chapter 4, we said that there is the norm uh, in all these areas and all these principles, but there are also the exceptions, right? So when we are ministering to somebody, we will minister according to the norm. Yeah, it ha- we have to encourage their faith and we have to, you know, uh, deal with sin and, and, and those things. Those are norms, but there's always exception. God works outside of the norm, the principles itself, and so we must be open to that as well. Today, we wanted to cover two chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6. So, it's going to be an express trade. We're going to go real fast. But because you have the book, uh, I want to encourage you to read it, study it, let it settle in your heart. And I'm just going to give an overview, a quick summary. In chapter 5... We talk about the secret to ministry as demonstrated by Jesus. You know, uh, uh, as, as, as ministers of God, we want to know, You know, what is the real secret to be successful in ministry? What is the real secret to see God use me uh, uh, as his vessel? And so you examine the life of Jesus. You look closely at the life of Jesus. And here are four things that I believe are pillars, are, are foundational, are core. Are keys in the ministry of Jesus um, that, that we find in the Gospels. These four things up here on page 136. Number one was Jesus ministered out of intimacy and obedience. Ministering out of intimacy and obedience. Number two, he ministered based on the finished work of the cross. Number three, he ministered from a place of dominion and authority And number four, he ministered to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just comment on each one of these. Key number one, page 136. Jesus ministered out of intimacy and obedience. You find the Lord Jesus spending much time alone with God. That was his life of intimacy with the Father. And you find that he lived a life of obedience to the Father. And out of that, he ministered. So intimacy, obedience, brings fruitfulness. And Jesus taught us the same thing. In John 15, he turned around to you and me. He said, look, I'm the wine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If my words are bad if you are me, my words are you'll be fruitful, very fruitful. And then he said, you know, this is the real evidence of your love. And, he, and I've listed those verses there over and over again. He said, you know, um, in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. You are my friends. In John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And in John 14, 21, he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them. It is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest or reveal myself to him. So he says again, look, if you love me, then keep my commandments. Obedience is so important. So intimacy plus obedience results in fruitfulness. Let's say these three words together. Intimacy, obedience, fruitfulness. Intimacy. Obedience, fruitfulness. See, we cannot isolate these. You and I walk in that place of intimacy with God, in obedience to Him, and we will be fruitful in our lives. We can't separate it. In fact, here's His promise. He says, you know, if you love me, you keep my commandments, and if you keep my commandments, here's what I will do. I will reveal myself to you, You will be loved by my Father, that means you will experience more of the Father's love. I will reveal myself to you, and we will come and make our home with you. I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying, hey, I'll just check in with you, I'll just move in. We will come and make our home with you. But when will that happen? If you love me, you keep my commandments. You do what I'm saying, and here's what I'll do. You'll experience more of the Father's love, You'll have greater revelation. I'll reveal myself to you and a greater intimacy. I'll just come and live with you. Are you with me so far? Right? So intimacy and obedience just takes us into this whole realm where we can be really fruitful uh, for the kingdom of God. The second thing we see, and I like what John G. Lake says, here, and I'll just read that out for you. This on page 138, the uh, bottom part of it. Here's what he says. He says, healing is basically a spiritual thing. The power that heals the sick comes from God, down through your spirit, out through your hands, into that man or woman. If you're having the right kind of spiritual fellowship, you will have power with God and there is no escaping it. Right? If you're having that right kind of fellowship, I mean you're connected to that unlimited source of power. He says that power is going to flow through you. The right kind of fellowship or communion. Next paragraph he says, this is true. That when we are in right communion and fellowship with the Lord. There is not enough power in all of hell to put disease on your little finger. And this was a man who walked with God. He knows what he's talking about. Second thing we see in the ministry of Jesus is. That key number two. Jesus ministered based on the finished work of the cross. Even before Jesus went and died on the cross. He forgave the sins of people. And he healed sicknesses. And he delivered them. On the basis of His work on the cross. Of what He was going to do on the cross. Matthew 8, 16 and 17 says, When the evening was come, they brought to Him all those who were sick, and those who were diseased, and those who were demon-possessed. He cast the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled. What was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, Himself took our infirmities and bore our diseases. So, why did Jesus heal? Why did He cast out devils? As or on the basis of the cross, what Isaiah said He will do on the cross. So, Jesus ministered based on the work that He would finish on the cross. The fact that sin was carried, sickness was born, and Satan was defeated on the cross on that basis. Today, you and I are living on the other side of the cross. How much more can you and I minister on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross? So when you're praying for a sick person, you pray with absolute confidence. Jesus took all his sins, all his sickness. That's why I can pray for him. The work has been done. Amen? Put your hand up and say this with me. I need to keep you awake, right? The work has been done. I minister based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Amen. He finished the work. Based on that, we can minister healing, minister deliverance. It's done. That's what gives us the confidence to minister to the sick. The third thing we see about Jesus in his in his ministry as he uh, as a as a key or as a secret. To his ministry is he ministered from a place of dominion and authority. In whatever situation you find Jesus. You find him with confidence. You find him as a master over the situation. You never see him trying to negotiate. Plead uh, with the devil. You never find him intimidated by any kind of demonic force. You never find him uh, uh, being you know. Uh, impressed by the, 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 the difficulty of the situation. Nothing. Always in a sense of mastery and authority. Now you remember he went over to the, uh, the Gadarenes and there was this man who came running over and Jesus, asked, what's your name? So legions, 6,000 demons. You know? Now you don't find Jesus saying, whoa, 6,000, maybe I should go. <laughs> you don't find Jesus doing that. 6,000 demons? Doesn't matter. You have to come out. When he was on the way to Jairus' house, his daughter was at the point of death, the news comes saying, don't trouble the master, your daughter is dead. I mean, it's over now. Jesus didn't turn around to Jairus and said, Jairus, you should have come to me with one hour earlier, keeping in mind the Bangalore traffic. You know, He didn't say that. He said, Jairus, fear not, only believe. Yeah, the daughter is dead. Fear not, only, things have gone worse. Fear not, only, we'll get this fixed. So, in whatever situation, he ministered with a sense of mastery, dominion and authority. And that's the way you and I must minister. Whatever you find, said, so I can overcome. God in me is greater than this sickness, than disease, than this problem. God's in me. Amen? Walk with that sense of authority and dominion. That doesn't mean we have to be arrogant and uh, and boastful. No. That sense of dominion and authority is that a spirit inside you that you know God is bigger and greater than this problem. That's the kind of spirit we must walk in. Amen? That's how he ministered. And lastly, of course, we've been talking about it. Number four, he ministered by the presence and the power of the holy spirit and we've talked about that before here's what i want to impress on our hearts all these four keys to his ministry are available to all of us all of us can walk in intimacy and obedience with god all of us can minister based on the finished work of the cross all of us can Walk with that sense of authority and dominion. And all of us can minister by the power of the Holy. It's available to all of us. So we must grow. Press in. To the, in these four areas. So that we can minister the way the Lord Jesus Christ ministered. Are you with me so far? Right? So let's review. What were the four areas? Number one, intimacy and obedience. Number two, the finished work of the cross. Number three, ministering in a sense of out of dominion and authority. Number four, ministering by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. All of us can do this. Let's grow in it. Let's grow in it. And, and, I, and I believe that as we keep growing in this, we will see more and more of the ministry of Jesus released through each of us. Amen? Now, we're going to go into a very interesting chapter. Chapter number six. So tell a neighbor, time to wake up. In chapter six, we answer some of the common questions that people have About sickness and healing we take all the difficult passages and we say okay let's analyze this let's provide an answer for this these are often the passages that people will use to make excuses for sickness and disease and all of that so we're going to address them are you ready we're going to talk about it. and say, what, what is the correct understanding of these passages? Now, keep in mind that every time we want to interpret Scripture, there are two things we must do. First, all Scripture must be interpreted in the light of the rest of Scripture. Right? I can't take one passage in isolation and just interpret it by itself. I have to interpret every passage of Scripture in the light of the rest of Scripture. Okay? Second, all Scripture must be interpreted in the light of the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the Word who became flesh. He is perfect theology. There is no error in Him. So all of Scripture must be interpreted in the light of the person of Jesus Christ. Do we agree on that? Right? In, in the light of who he is and what he said and what he did, we have to interpret the rest of Scripture. So let's look at these things. I'm going to go through these quickly, um, but you can read the text and read the uh, the comments that are made here in this book. So let's talk about Paul Paul's thorn. You read about this in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verses seven through ten, and Paul writes here. He says. Lest I should be exalted above measure, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me. And uh, then he says, you know, and I, I prayed to the Lord three times. Uh, and uh, to take this away, and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul says, you know, okay, therefore, even in the midst of all my infirmities, I will gladly therefore rejoice, you know, in the midst of all of these things, that the power of Christ uh, may be made manifest in me. So, what is this thorn in the flesh? Many people read this passage, and they say, you know, Paul also had a thorn in the flesh. That thorn was some eye disease, some hand problem, all those things they say. Now, eye disease because, you know, when he wrote to the Galatians, he said, see with what large letters I have written to you. So he had eye problem. Or he wrote to the Galatians and said, you know, uh, some of you would have given me your hand itself if, if I needed. So he had a hand problem, they would have given. So like this, people pick up things in isolation. They try to interpret, you know, what this thorn in the flesh Paul might have had. And they say it was some sort of a sickness he had. But I don't believe that is a right interpretation because... Right there, Paul tells us, and he, in the context of chapter 11 and 12, 2 Corinthians, Paul explains to us what the thorn in the flesh is. He says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. What are the next words? A messenger of? So what was this thorn in the flesh? It was not some sickness or disease. It was a messenger of Satan. The word messenger is the Greek word angelos. It's the same word that's used for an angel. Or it's even used for any messenger. A preacher is called angelos. In, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when the Lord is speaking to the churches, each of the seven churches, He says to the angelos of Ephesians, to the angelos of Sardis, to the angelos of each of those churches, He's saying to the messenger, you say this, So Paul's thorn in the flesh was an angel, a demonic being, an angel of Satan. It's a demonic being. To do what? To buffet him, meaning to come repeatedly against him over and over again. That was the thorn in the flesh. The second thing we must remind all believers is the purpose of this thorn in the flesh. What did Paul say? You know, because of the abundance of revelations given to me. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. That automatically disqualifies all of us. Did you get that? None of us qualify for a thorn in the flesh. So somebody, somebody comes and says, You know, man, God's really given me a thorn in the flesh. Saying, hey. You don't even qualify for one. What are you talking about? You, you're as great as Paul or what? You know? What did Paul say? Because of the abundance of? So you, I mean, I, come on, tell me how many revelations have you got? You, know? you don't even qualify for a thorn in the flesh. You haven't had that much of revelation. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So when somebody says, you know, I've got a thorn in the flesh and this is happening and the God has given me this sickness in my body has a thorn. No, no, come on. You don't even qualify for one in the first place. Because Paul said, because of the abundance of the revelations, God wanted me to stay humble, remain humble, keep my feet on the ground. In, in, and in order to do that, he permitted this, this, this demonic angel coming and affecting me. How does the angel affect Paul's ministry? He writes clearly in chapter 11. That he faced all kinds of hardships. He was shipwrecked many times, he was whipped many times, he, he went hungry many times, naked many times, and he, he faced all these things. And these were the doings, most of them were the doings of this messenger of Satan. So he explains it. He writes chapter 11, I mean, chapter 11, the whole passage is written together. So, To summarize, it is incorrect to say Paul's thorn in the flesh is a sickness or a disease and it's incorrect for any believer to claim that they have a thorn in the flesh because we don't qualify for one. Amen? Let's move on, next one. Job's troubles, this is on page 144. What about Job's troubles? And I've listed some of the verses there. You know, it's very clear in the book of Job that it was Satan who went and smote Job. Job chapter 1 verse 12 says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote him, smote Job. Job 2 verse 6 and 7, Then The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spared his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of, crown of his head. But Job maintained his his walk with God in Job 2 verse 10. All this Job did not sin with his lips. But there was a problem, an entry point in Job's life. In Job 3.25. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. And what I dreaded has happened to me. But the book ends with a great ending in Job 42 verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. That's a happy ending. And James 5, the New Testament says, look at the patience of Job, his endurance through his troubles as an example. Now here's what you must keep in mind. First of all, the whole book of Job, although it's written over 42 chapters, did not take 42 years. It didn't even take 42 months. Job's experience was most likely within one, a one year periods. That's pretty easy, okay? So we read like 42 chapters, maybe 42 years he struggled. Hey, no, it's a one year thing that we're looking at. Secondly, it is very clear that it was Satan who did all the damage to Job. It was not God. So if somebody says, man, God is doing all this to me, I'm like Job. Tell them, say, hey, God is not your problem. The devil is. Okay. God. Tell your neighbor. God is not your problem. So many people blame it. God is doing this. God is. No. God is not your problem. It's the devil that's doing all these things. Don't blame God for it. Okay. Then. What do we learn from Job? Yes. God did grant permission for the devil to do what he did. Same thing with you and me today. That is. That is. The devil's around, he is moving around, he is doing things, the demonic spirits are working all kinds of things in our circumstances, situations, in our environment around us, and God's permitting it. So we're kind of in the same situation. Then, there's a big difference. Job did not have the kind of revelation that you and I have today from the word of God. Job did not know about the power of the blood of Jesus. He did not know about how to use the weapons of his warfare. He did not know about the armor of God. He had none of it. But you and I have all of that revelation. Are you with me? So the Bible says, even if the enemy comes, he says, put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. So you and I have the armor of God and we can stand. He says, take the shield of faith with which you will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You've got a shield that can quench the fiery darts. Job didn't know anything about those things. So when the enemy came, he didn't know how to respond. He didn't have all that understanding and revelation. Are you with me? So we can't excuse ourselves like that. Like Job. And say, oh, God is doing these things. God is not. And the nice thing is this, God intervened eventually in Job's life and says, Okay, Job, what you need to do is just forgive, pray for your friends. And God restored everything. Twice as much as he had. God turned everything around. Everything the devil did, God turned it around. Everything the enemy might come against you to do, God's going to turn it around for double good. Amen? The one entry point that we see that the devil had was the fear that Job carried. Job said, the thing I have greatly feared. Fear is fate in the wrong direction. And Job carried, seemingly carried this, in the thing I greatly feared. So he was a devout man. He worshipped God the best he knew how. But inside him was this fear. Oh, this might happen. And eventually he said, the thing I greatly feared happened to me. So the lesson for us is, don't fear, walk by faith. And you you and I can live an overcoming life. Are you with me so far? Page 146, another very difficult passage. Delivering one to Satan. Twice in Paul's letters... Once in writing to the Corinthian church, and then in writing to the Ephesian church, Paul talks about releasing somebody over to Satan. Now that's serious business. Uh, but we must understand the context, what was happening. In the Corinthian church, there was a man who was living in immorality, he was not changing his face. And in order to bring discipline, so Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, you need to discipline this man, you need to put him out of church for some time. And Paul says, I, in the spirit, have already handed him over to Satan, meaning I've already released him, taken off the protection that we that he would come under as part of God's body, as part of the church, taken it off. So really... I am removing all protection of him so that the devil may, have, may do whatever he wants to do, but his spirit is going to be saved. So this was in a context of discipline, of immorality. And Paul said, that's what I'm going to do. Now we know in this case that the man repented. So in 2 Corinthians, when Paul writes to Corinthian church, he says, now I want you to forgive him and receive him with love. Because he's repented. But if you don't do that. The devil will take advantage of us. Or us not forgiving somebody. Forgive. Receive. So it was in that context. He said I'm handing over to Satan. Meaning I'm taking of all cover, protection. Over his life. Let the devil do what he wants to do. So at least he'll come back to his senses. In the Ephesian church. Similarly. There were two men. One was a man named Hymenius, And there was another man named Alexander. That Paul writes about, and again, he handles them the same way. He says, I hand them over to Satan. What does he mean? Why does he do it? Hymenes was a man who most was opposing Paul, and more importantly, was causing all kinds of division or confusion among the church by preaching that the um, resurrection is already over. So, he's telling everybody, Hey, you guys, you didn't book your ticket early enough. You missed it. The resurrection is over. It's over. So he's causing confusion in the church. And he's not listening to Paul. And there's another man, Alexander. Paul says, this man tried to do me harm. Now we don't know in what way he was trying to harm Paul. Whether you know he was writing about him in Deccan Herald, in Times of India, putting all these you know, things on the internet about Paul. I don't know what he was doing. But he was hurting Paul. And opposed to... What the minister, uh, Paul's ministry. So, in these two cases, Paul says, I hand them over to Satan. Meaning, I am taking away all spiritual protection over their lives, which they would come under, and now the devil can do whatever he wants to them. Now, in these two cases, we do not know what actually happens. Right? Now, here's the point none of us need to worry about being handed over to Satan. Amen? You're not doing any of these kinds of things. Don't worry. Okay? So you don't have to worry about that. And, 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 uh, uh, you know, and, and say that, oh, this is happening to me because of this. Another example, another uh, passage is in the Corinthian church. This is on page 148. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. Where Paul writes to this church and says... Many are weak many are sick and many die prematurely Now can you imagine a congregation where many people are falling many many people are weak many people are falling sick and many are dying prematurely That was happening in the Corinthian church And Paul explains to them why why is this happening The main reason is this that they are not celebrating the Lord's table the way it is supposed to be done. Instead, they are doing it in a totally disorderly manner. For them, the Lord's table is lunchtime. Ooh, service is over, let's eat. So for them, it's not like taking a little piece of bread. Thank God, we only give one small piece. (laughs) For them, it's like, let me take the whole loaf. And it's not one little cup. Man, take a big cup. Go sit down in a corner and eat. I'm having my lunch. So that's the way they're doing the Lord's table. They are, it's totally disorderly. So Paul says, don't you have homes in which you can have your food? Why are you treating this like a big feast? And they're doing the whole thing without discerning, without understanding the Lord's body. Without understanding what this all means. So what's happening? Instead of them receiving healing, health and wholeness for their body, which comes to the cross... They are missing the entire blessing. And so what's the consequence? They are weak, sick, and dying prematurely. Are you with me? Now, you and I don't have to be afraid of this because we don't do it like that. For us, partaking of the Lord's table is done with reverence. And we give you only a small piece of bread, a small cup of grape juice, you can't get drunk on it. And we do it reminding all of us that why we are doing it. We are looking at the cross of Jesus. So we are not in that same position. And we do not. Or we are not a people who are weak, sick and dying prematurely. But instead we receive the blessing of the cross. Which is health, healing and wholeness for our bodies. Are you with me? Yes or no? Is this getting too intense? Is okay? Alright. Now in that context. Paul does mention. If we judge ourselves. We will not be judged. But if we are judged. We are chastened by the Lord. And I'm going to keep that for a little later. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. And talk about the chastening of the Lord. But that explains the Corinthian church. Now there are a few other quick instances. This is on page 150. About Timothy's Stomach. In 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verse 23, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, so obviously here, Timothy had a stomach problem. Now, why he had it, how long he had it, we don't know. Maybe, you know, Timothy was from Lystra. Paul had sent him out to be pastor in Ephesus, So maybe, you know, the food in Ephesians, the water in Ephesians didn't agree. I don't know, right? We don't know exactly how long his stomach problem was, but he had stomach problem often. So what does Paul write to Timothy? He says, please use some wine for your stomachs. Sorry, right? Again, this wine was not for him to get drunk, but this wine was to bring healing and take care of his stomach problem. So... What do we summarize from that? We summarize that it is okay to take some, uh, some things, some medicines or medi- things of medicinal value to help with your body. It's perfectly fine. Maybe this day for some problem, you may not have wine, you may have something else. Hopefully. <laughs> but it's okay to do that. Paul said, Timothy, take it. But we don't know too much about Timothy's condition. So we can't comment too much on that. What we can say it's okay is that it is okay to take something to help your body and, and to, uh, to ease your illness. The same thing with Hezekiah. In 2 Kings chapter 20. Verse 1 to 7, it says, Hezekiah was sick, he was about to die. The prophet comes to him and says, you need to set your house in order. Others are going to die. Hezekiah turns to the Lord, he repents. And what happens? God says, tell those people around him to make a paste out of figs and put it on the boils on his body and he will be healed. And so they do that and Hezekiah is healed. So what can we summarize from that? Again, uh, 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 we don't know what kind of medicinal value those figs that paste made of figs had, but we can summarize that, yes, it's okay to use other things medicine, that are, have medicinal value to bring remedy and God will use that to bring remedy and healing to our bodies and it's perfectly fine. Now, on page 152, 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul writes about a man named Trophimus. And he says in 2 Timothy 4.20, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus, I have left in Miletus sick. Now, that's interesting. That Paul, who ministered, who a powerful minister of healing and deliverance, would write and say, I have left one of my fellow co-workers sick in Miletus. Now, we don't know how long uh, Trophimus was sick, whether it was one day, two days. We don't know the duration. We don't know the nature of that sickness. But Paul continued in his ministry and he continued ministering healing and deliverance. He didn't stop saying, oh, maybe God doesn't heal. No, he continued ministering. But yet he had to admit that he left one of his fellow co-workers sick. So what's the message for us? The message is, yes, there are times we don't know why somebody doesn't get healed. But we do not stop ministering healing and deliverance just because of that. Paul faced the same thing. Are you with me so far? We're going to get finished soon. Next one is another man named Epaphroditus. Paul writes about him in in Philippians, and in Philippians chapter 2, and verse 27, the top of page 153, Paul says, For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So who was Epaphroditus? Now, here's the situation. Paul was in prison, and the church in Philippi sent a man named Epaphroditus to Serve Paul while he was in prison. Now while he was there serving Paul, Paul says he almost died serving me. He almost, he came close to death. But don't worry, God had mercy on him, he's back on his feet, everything is fine. Now, we don't know the details of what Epaphroditus was doing, how he was serving Paul. You know, maybe he was waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, grinding the idli, grinding the chutney, making the dosa, taking, all, taking it I don't know what he was doing. But he was working so hard in the ministry in order to serve Paul that he almost lost his life. But God had mercy on him. He was alive and he was able to go back to his own people. So there's a lesson here that just because I am serving God does not mean, and I'm saying this to myself as well, you know, all of you looking at me, does not mean I shouldn't take care of myself. I could push myself so hard that I might just die serving God. And God's not responsible for that. It's my mistake. Right? That's what happened to Epaphroditus. He pushed himself so much in trying to take care of Paul, he almost died. And so, Paul writes about him. But there's a lesson. That we must take care of ourselves while we are ministering and serving God. The last difficult passage we'll handle is in, back in that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is sickness the chastening of the Lord. You know, people quote this passage from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight 28 to 32 where Paul writes about um, verse 32, he says, when, when we are judged, we are chastened by the law that we may not be condemned to the world. And they use that to say, sickness is a chastening of the Lord. Because of the context in which it's given. But we also must read Hebrews 12, 5 through 7, when it talks about the chastening of the law, that when God chastens us, he deals with us, As a father deals with his son. So what's chastening? It's the loving correction that a father brings to his children in order to lead them and help them grow in righteousness. That is chastening. Are you with me? Now, let me ask you some questions. The first question is, how many of us, being parents if we wanted to teach our children, would afflict them with cancer, with heart disease, with some uh, terminal illness, in order to teach them what they need to learn. And don't put up your hand. (laughs) I assume that there would be no parent that would ever do that. No parent would do that. So how dare we accuse God of doing something we ourselves would never do? Are we better than God? No. So how could we say, God gave me cancer in order to teach me this lesson. Hey, what are you saying? Or God is chastening me with this kind of illness. What are you saying? Are you saying you're better than God? Because you, as a parent, would never do that. And you're saying God, as your father, is putting the sickness on you to teach you some lesson? Are you better than God? No. What's chastening? Chastening is a loving correction that God brings into our lives through His Word, by His Spirit, and through other people that God lovingly corrects in order to help us grow in righteousness, to grow in the path He wants us to grow in. And He's not going to use sickness and disease and terminal illnesses to do that. The common thing we see among Christians is this. You know, somebody falls sick and lying on bed, Getting bored, nothing to do. Can't even watch TV for too too much. So that's when they, you know, pick up that APC publication to read. And then they read it, and they learn so much. They get well, and they come up with this revelation. God chastened me with illness in order to read these books from APC. I'm just making it up, but... But that's, what, that's, that's the context when people talk about the chastening of the Lord. But my response to that would be the two things. One, would you put your child on a sick bed in order for them to learn biology? You would never do that. So how come you're saying God did that to you? And the second obvious response is, Hey, you could have read that book when you were hale and hearty. And learnt the same spiritual things when you were fine. So don't attribute to God something which we as earthly parents would never do. So what is the tasting of the Lord? It is God lovingly correcting us in order to bring us into the right path. And in Paul's writing to the Corinthians, Paul's own correction is God's dealing of chastening, to bring this whole thing about how to uh, participate in the Lord's table correctly. That's God's chastening. Bring, bring back what is in disorder, bring it to order. God is doing that for them. In closing, page 158, I answer two questions there. Is it alright to combine faith and medicine? And the answer is yes. Because in the light of what we see, Paul writing to Timothy, and in how God worked in Hezekiah's life, it's fine. God can use natural remedies to bring healing to our body. Uh, so we uh, accept, we welcome those natural remedies and medicine things, medicines to work in our bodies. But our faith is in God. Medicine or no medicine, our faith is in the Lord. He is our healer. And last question is there. Uh, is taking care of your health a sign of unbelief? No. We learn from Epaphroditus that it is important To take care of our health. Just because we are serving the Lord doesn't mean uh, we can um, disregard our health. No, we have to take care of our health. Call our worship team up. We're going to pray. I know we are well over our normal time. But this morning, we wanted to deal with some of these difficult passages that people usually talk about. To excuse sin. Uh, sickness and disease in, in our bodies, and, and we must understand our God's our healer. And by faith, like Abraham, reach out and receive. So, even as we close in these few moments, I want you to pray. Maybe till now, you had all these questions, and, and uh, these were things that were causing you to tolerate sickness and disease and and accept it as it is God's will for you but this morning you heard the word I want you to stand up and say okay God I will not tolerate sickness and disease in my body you are my healer I'm receiving healing from my body I just want to pray a quick prayer and believe that God will cause healing to take place in your body have Abraham's faith this morning that looks at the word and says the word is superior to my circumstances and my natural evidence. The word says I'm healed and I will walk in health and strength. <clears throat> Father, we have spoken your word. We've studied your word this morning. And I ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, just to confirm your word in the lives of your people, O oh God. Your word will not return to you void. And you send your word and it heals your people. Your word is health and healing to our bodies. And even as we were listening to this word, I thank you that healing is taking place and healing and health is released into our bodies. just sitting under your word that comes from your spirit. So Lord, let healing take place. Even as by faith we receive the Word of God, let healing take place. Let sicknesses and diseases that have been in the bodies for a long time leave now in the name of Jesus Christ. Let the power of your word, the power of your spirit to spring healing. Command healing to your bones, your joints, your muscles, your nerves, your tendons, your ligaments just release healing. Command all the systems in the body to function normally in the name of Jesus. From the crown of your head to the sole of your feet be healed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Command every organ in your body to function normally. In the name of Jesus. Let every ailment, every disorder be removed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God, for just confirming your words. Thank you, God, for just confirming your words. Your word is established, it's settled. And your word brings healing even now. Thank you. Thank you for wholeness, the power of your spirit doing what's impossible. Thank you. Thank you, God. You're our healer. And we worship you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just say this together. I receive God's word. God's word heals me. God's word is health and healing to my body. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the sweet communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us this day and always. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. Continue to be strong in the Lord, in His Word. and God use you. Amen. God bless.
1: We trust that this
0: message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional
1: resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.